0: Oh, so. How's that? Not so good. Ah, et voilà. Oh, so This afternoon, of course, we'll continue with the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, starting from the center and then extending out in very classic, Classic fashion, it's worked for more than 1,500 years. Let's, let's get another generation to succeed in this sequence of beginning with oneself, extending out to loved ones, neutral, finally breaking down all barriers so the heart is open in a spirit of loving kindness, of warmth, of affection, excluding no one. In other words, being, being decent and realistic with everybody. The whole idea here, again, the very notion of immeasurable, Immeasurable is that all barriers are broken down. All barriers are broken down. And so it's easy to think, oh yeah, well, I have some difficulty with this person, we've really had some conflict and so forth, and so there's a barrier there. But we should think closer to home, we should think at home about the first barriers, um, and consider a phrase that I think resonates with a lot of people, and I'm sure not everyone, but it's rather common nowadays in our modern world, and that is the notion, implicit or explicit, that if people knew me better, they'd like me less. Right? And if we want to see whether that strikes home, I consider, and I've, I've just loved to envision this technology, it's not inconceivable, it might happen, uh, but some you know, really whiz kid in the brain, in the neurosciences, Getting a Rosetta Stone, remember that technology? That takes your brain waves, especially from the frontal cortex, and translates them. That is, whatever thought you're having, it picks it up, translates it from the brain waves, and maybe the complex of other neuronal activity, and actually makes it into sound. And you wear, the, you wear a little beanie, and it's got a loudspeaker. <laughs> but it's not only a loudspeaker, actually, it's a video screen. And so, the images that come to mind and your internal commentary are both being broadcast. (laughs) Hello, Carlos. And I just say, hello, Carlos. In the meantime, Carlos can see exactly what's occurring in my mind. (laughs) The images are coming up, the background chatter, what I'm really thinking. Hi, Carlos, how are you? And then, blah, 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 blah. And he gets the whole... Anybody really wanna look at that (laughs) video camera? (laughs) And how long would civilization last if we all were compelled by law to wear such a video camera? Uh, Can you imagine a courtship? (laughs) You want that, you disgusting pig. (laughs) Women are really naughty. (laughs) And so, yeah, there we are. We're laughing because what we might see there may not be all that lovable. All of our mental affliction will show up. Every thought, every image, every bit of all the stuff. And of course there's somebody who does get to watch that video screen and listen to the commentary, the audio track. Yeah, how can we stand ourselves? Because actually somebody's watching that movie. It's ourselves, especially when you get stuck in a place like this. (laughs) The mind center. And you got nothing to get your mind off your mind. And no wonder people are freaking out with nausea and you can't sleep and you're <laughs> uptight and your pressure's coming to the head. You can't stand the person you're with. <laughs> and I sympathize. <laughs> so just think, it's only a month, a month away and you can get your mind off your mind and you can see other people and not see their thoughts. So what does it mean, what does it mean to say, to love oneself when we actually are getting that video screen and we're frankly seeing an awful lot of stuff that's not lovable? I mean, what can one say? We see mental afflictions coming up, you know? And so this whole tendency nowadays, I mean, we're all familiar with it, so I'm going to mention it only very briefly, but this tendency, and frankly, it's not uncommon among folks here as it is not uncommon anywhere else to be so tough on ourselves, so judgmental, so much not living up to our expectations, so much pushing ourselves, driving ourselves, feeling never never, good enough. And I think there's nothing special up or down about this group when we are really representative. I mean, in terms of devotion to Dharma, this is exceptional, of course. But in terms of the baggage we bring with us just by being raised where we are and being human beings, uh, I think a lot of the kind of tendencies here are rather typical. And so, this whole tendency of being a very judgmental, and here's the phrase, upon ourselves, upon ourselves, upon ourselves, and recognizing how miserable that makes us, and uptight and wasted, and never really being able to take delight in anything, because we're always seeing that bloody bloody video screen and the commentary, which is, you know. Not that pleasant in many cases. And so seeing that and see how much misery there is and this, all this harshness, judgmentalness and so forth, and then, some, then, then goes into self-contempt and blah, 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 lack of self-worth. No wonder then there's a big backlash or a big rebound from that. And we get these phrases, and I've seen them, and I, and I really literally don't have any person in mind here, but I know I've seen it. And that is whatever comes up, just, you know, whatever, as you're watching your mind, just whatever comes up, just embrace it. It's part of you. Whatever it is, just embrace it. You know, embrace your whole self. Don't be judgmental. Embrace all of yourself. So, I'm feeling I want to abuse somebody. Oh, well, just (laughs) embrace that. I want to show sarcasm and arrogance. Oh, I want to deceive somebody and actually rob them, do it nicely, (laughs) It winds up being idiotic in about the first or second breath. Wait a minute. Well, why should we stop there if we're going to embrace the toxins of the mind? I think, really, Alma took the wrong step when she had bronchitis. She was taking, I think, medicine. She should have been embracing the bronchitis, embracing the bronchitis. And other people have had a little bit of stomach problems. You should embrace that, you know. And every other disease and every other affliction of the body, it's part of you. And why should we stop there? Intestinal gas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's part of you. And then it becomes shared with everybody. <laughs> And we should love it, you know. You shared a little piece of yourself with me. <laughs> you are loving it, and now I get to love it too. <laughs> it's so idiotic. I mean, really, all one has to do is start pushing the logic. And you see, this is, this is really, I'm sorry, but it's, it really is crap. Because, you know, intestinal gas, crap, it's really all part of the system. Most of the crap is inside, you know, and I love all of you. The upper gastrointestinal tract, the middle, the large bowel, the small bowel, your cute little anus, you know. It's just ridiculous <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> so how do we move from something that is not a laughing matter that to me, creates a lot of suffering? And we know this from our own, many of us, from our experience—the judgmentalness, the, the harshness, the cracking of the whip, never feeling we never live up to our expectations—and then seeing the, the flip side of the same thing is just laughable. I mean, it's just hilarious. Really quickly, hilarious. Is there anything we can do besides laughing our heads off at absurdity, or doing something where there's no laughing matter at all that is really painful? Because it's delusion meeting delusion. And so, is there something? Because this is delusional, really. It's completely delusional to love hatred, to love, del- to love delusion, to love craving, hostility, mental afflictions. It's absurd. Just as it's absurd to, abs- to love feces or to love, you know, viruses and bacteria. So is there some way out of this? Because clearly this is a problem that needs to be addressed. There's no question. That's very afflictive. It's painful. It's got causes. But the antidote for delusion is not another delusion. So is there a way through this? And the answer, of course, is staring us in the face, all along. And that is, what is staring you, what is staring you in the face is not you, right? As I look over at Carissa, it's not me, you know? It's somebody else. It's in a, that is, on a superficial level, it's an array of appearances. On a deeper level, it's a person. But it's not me, it's not this person here, right? And I hear the sound of the air conditioning. Well, that's not me. That's an appearance arising to my mind. Well, exactly the same way. So are the mental afflictions. Appearances arising to the mind. Right? They are. And so are pains in the stomach or pains in the back or, you know, their appearances. But if their appearances arising to the mind, hey, that's not me. That's Exactly what I just said. An appearance arising to the mind of a wide variety to all six senses. And then we hear this thunderous simplicity of the Buddha saying, in the scene, let there be just the scene. And I just looked at something. I said, ah, look, in the field of my vision, there's not only the form of Carissa, of Paula, Maria, but I'm looking there. Oh, there's the form of my hand, of my arm, hair on the top of my arm. I guess that's not me either it's just an appearance arising to my awareness. how can, how can i be in two places at once are there two of me the hair over there and then me over here i don't think so i think there's only one person here as far as i counted last count so that's not me either that's just hair that's just skin that's a that's a hand and yeah and that's 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 not me those those are legs if if you if you could see underneath there i guarantee they there they're legs down there and there's torso, and there's, there's all kinds of vital organs and so forth. And then when I close my eyes and attend directly, I'm seeing what? We've all looked at this. An array of tactile sensations. Earth, water, fire, air, space. Which one of those is me? You know? Well, their appearances arising in the mind. They can't possibly be me. They're arising to me. Unless there's two of me, but it's not only two of me, because then there's a whole bunch of me. If each one is me, if that arm is me, well, then that arm is me too. That makes three of us already. You know, and that's not counting each of the hairs. It gets, you know, Sri's company makes, we have a lot of hairs, makes a lot of, a lot of a crowd. And so none of these appearances are me. And so just as the appearances in my body are, are not me, the, the tactile sensations arising within the field of body are not me, I tend to the space of the mind, and I'm just seeing a whole smear of all kinds of subjective impulses. Not me. I am not a desire. I am not an emotion. They're not people not human beings, they're just desires and emotions and all the appearances, the thoughts, the mental images and so forth, the dreamscapes, they're not me, they're exactly what they just said they are, dreamscapes, images and so forth. So where in the midst of all of this am I? And when I say I should love myself, as, as the Buddha himself counsels, what are you referring to? What was he referring to? Not hair, not vital organs. Not tactile sensations, not thoughts, love that thought, love that emotion. It doesn't mean anything. They're not sentient beings. We don't love them. They're just phenomena. Nothing to love any more than this, my very famous iPhone. You know? So what does that even mean? And so, clearly this needs not a delusion to respond to a delusion, but maybe some insight to dispel both illusions, of I hate myself, I'm an awful person because I've got all these thoughts, and I love all the thoughts because they're me. Okay, delusion meets delusion. How about some wisdom inside? None of these phenomena arising to my awareness are me. How about the awareness of them? How about the awareness of them? Is that, is that a person? The awareness of them, that exactly which we've been inspecting, an awareness of awareness, probing into what is that which is observing what is directing, focusing, releasing the attention? Is that a person? Is that a person? If so, what are the, what are the qualities of this person? Right. Not to be found. So there's a mid-phase of thinking here, which I think can be useful to a very limited extent, but really limited and then you find you're like, uh, what's the name of that coy- Wiley Coyote It's a very famous image, Wiley Coyote. It's a, it's a cartoon in, in America, probably many of you have seen it, where the, co- the coyote is always chasing the roadrunner. But the famous image in this whole series of cartoons, we all watched it, my generation, we all watched it when we were kids, is the coyote is running, 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 and then he runs off a cliff, and he's, and he's, hanging, he's suspended. It's a very unusual suspension of gravity for a moment. Because he, he looks at that and then he, he looks into the camera, gives a big, and then <laughs> <laughs> down it goes. But it's wily Coyote suspended in midair just before he drops. We just, we, they just wanted to get, he's about to fall, and he just recognized it. okay? Wiley Coyote. Oh, yeah. Here's Wiley Coyote. And that is, and this is half baked Buddhism. That's what I call it, half baked Buddhism. Aha, I gotcha. The body is not I. Feelings, thoughts, emotions, mental phenomena, whole ray of consciousness is, is not I. Therefore, there are thoughts with no thinker. That is, the answer to the question is, there are thoughts, but there are, there's no thinker. There's no observer. There's simply the act of observing. There's no one here. But if there's no one here, that means when I look over at Carlos, there's nobody ever there. He's the same as me. There's nobody there over there, ever there either. And Carissa, I'm so sorry, no Carissa either. There's just body. There's a whole bunch of a bunch of sensations, perceptions, and so forth. But there is no Carlos and there's no Carissa, no Paolo. and no Luis. Sorry. Oh, and then here's Wiley Coyote. <laughs> then I don't love anybody because I don't exist and nobody is there to be loved. You have a little cloud of dust at the bottom when he hits the bottom of the. Is that where we're going? That suddenly there's nobody there, nobody anywhere, there's nobody to love, and nobody to love. There's nobody, there's nobody who's loving, and there's nobody to be loved because nobody exists. Wait a minute, is that really where you wanted to go? And a lot of people go right there. It's half-baked Buddhism. They're wily coyote that hasn't recognized. Whoops! They want to practice metta, but by the way, for nobody. <laughs> and then they try to get back, rrr, try to get back to the cliff. Maybe they make it, you know, it's really great traction in midair. And they get back to the cliff. And now you think, okay, now exactly, okay, I'm back on safe ground. I'm going to love somebody here. Okay, it's going to be Carlos. Gotta love Carlos because I can't have him not exist. Otherwise, I can't practice loving kindness. Uh, okay. You gotta love something that's there. But it's either his body or his mind. Can't see his mind. So I'm looking at big toe. Okay. Okay, Carlos. Here it goes. I'm gonna try to love that big toe of yours. It's a big toe. I mean that toe really hangs out there. That 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 toe wants attention. You know. <laughs> What are we going to do here? Start loving toes or loving skin or heads, backsides or loving that which is invisible. Carlos's feelings, his thoughts, emotions, I can't see them. So loving kindness is attending to people and it's half-baked Buddhism. It's half-baked Buddhism to think that Carlos's body exists. Or over there where I'm pointing my finger, there's a body and there are a whole bunch of mental events and consciousness, but there's no person. There's nobody. There's no I. There's simply no I. That's half-baked Buddhism. And here's how it's half-baked. Because I'm reifying the body, I'm reifying the mental events, I'm reifying consciousness as if they're really there for their own side. And then I'm taking a nihilistic route with respect to Carlos. Carlos doesn't exist at all because they're thoughts with no thinker. But the thoughts are really there. So it's following to, again, it's remedying delusion with delusion. It's now reifying the body and mind. I won't call them Carlos's because Carlos doesn't exist, of course. Just reifying the body. It's really there. Thoughts, emotions, mental events, consciousness, they're really there. Reifying them, falling into the extreme of reification, of sem- substantiality. But it, when it comes to a person I might actually love, oh, wily e. Coyote. <laughs> Nowhere to be found. Nobody to love. Because Carlos doesn't exist, right? Where is Carlos? He's not the body, he's not the mind, he's not something separate. <laughs> Down goes Wiley-Kaori. So, that's half-baked Buddhism. So when it's practicing this and then thinking metta, but then suddenly you have to go stupid metta. Because you have to negate what you are doing in your Vipassana practice. In the Vipassana practice, there's no Carlos. There's just thoughts without a thinker. Then you go to metta. Oh, well, I'm going to fo- have love for the thinker. What? Didn't you remember the first part? You, f- you forgot chapter one when you were doing chapter two. Chapter one said there's no thinker. Chapter two, he said you're going to have loving kindness for Carlos, but oh, he doesn't exist. Hi, Wiley Cody. Bye-bye. So how do we find some middle way here that is not, again, revening delusion with one more form of delusion? These are, these are real issues, aren't they? I think it's not just playing with words. It's not just, you know, academic... In the, in the most trivial sense of the term. The word is sometimes used pejoratively. Oh, that's merely academic. Oh, I think this is not academic. Or it, it, it is academic in the deepest sense of the term. So my own sense of this is that Tsongkhaba and other brilliant expositors of the middle way have come out with a way of cultivating compassion that is saturated with wisdom. And a way of cultivating wisdom that is saturated with compassion. And there's a middle way. And so when we are attending to, let's say, Carlos, and we're developing loving kindness for Carlos, or the whole roomful of people, but I like to sometimes speak in singular. So, Carlos, then what we're doing, and Tsongkhapa says it so clearly, mata mache. When you're raising the issue, who is Carlos? Mata mache. Don't investigate, don't analyze. Don't start doing an ontological analysis of what is the real nature of Carlos. Just acknowledge, hey, there is a person here. And the beauty of this middle way view is to acknowledge, and this is enormously important, that Carlos is no more or less real than Carlos's body, his mind, his feelings, his mental events, thoughts, consciousness. He's no more or less. This is the middle way. Carlos's body is an array of appearances that are empty. Carlos's mind is an array of appearances that is empty. Carlos arises as a matrix of appearances from situation to situation to situation. Carlos the human being, Carlos the man, he arises as an array of appearances and they are empty. But although empty, all of these have causal efficacy. Carlos does things. You all know, we've heard him speak. He swims, he runs, he meditates, he eats. Carlos does things. Carlos' thoughts do things. Carlos' body does things. Carlos is no more or less real than Carlos' mind, Carlos' body. Mata Meche. Without investigating, without analysis, don't go too far. Let relative reality meet relative reality. So if you're meditating on emptiness, then try to bring out an ultimate mind to, to meditate on ultimate reality. But if you're attending to conventional reality, let your conventional, your relative cultivation of loving kindness attend to the relative reality of yourself and those around you. So to make sense all of all this, that we can actually counteract delusion, not with delusion, but with insight and wisdom, something that really deeply makes sense and stands up to most careful scrutiny. A principle in Buddhism, a principle, and I love this principle, it's really deep, really deep philosophical issue, is if something is true, the more carefully investigate it, the more carefully we investigate it, with all of our intelligence, all of our wisdom, every tool, every, every bit we have. If something is true, the more carefully you investigate it, the truer it would appear. It will appear. And if something is false, the more carefully investigated, again, with all of our intelligence, with all our intelligent skepticism, critical analysis, everything, if something is false, the more carefully investigated, the falter it will appear. Right? So, not that much yet on a conventional level. There's a man to my right, there's a woman to my left. They are there. And we all know that's true. this is a woman. Who's going to deny that? Carlos is a man. Who's going to deny that? Of course it's true. And these are the objects, these are the subjects, these are the beings that we attend to when we're cultivating love and kindness. So it's really rather like magnification. Some of my, well, not some, one in particular, Francisco Varela, Francisco Varela, dear, dear friend. But he would comment, he could also be scathingly critical of reductionism. And he was so smart. He's one of the smartest friends I've ever had. Uh, and such a good-hearted man, and deep, he had depth, really did. But he, he was, could be scathingly uh, critical of reductionism when, it, when he would encounter physicists that would say, well, if you really want to understand everything, you have to boil it down to atoms, down to the fundamental units, I mean, ontological reductionism. He said, that's how you, re- you know, that's how you really understand things. And he would look at this and say, boy, is this crap. This is just a bunch of crap. You don't understand the workings of a, n- of a neuron or a whole ganglia of neurons or a whole system of neurons and their interaction with other systems of neurons in the brain. You do not understand it by going down and looking at electrons or atoms or likely molecules that you, you miss it. You get less understanding of the brain if you're going down to that level. You get less. You don't even know you're looking at a brain. say, oh, H2O. Oh, there's an electron. Hey, there's an electron. You look like the same electron, now the other one. Hey, you're all the same. Oh, Carlos's brain is the same as C- Curtis's brain. They're both made of electrons and protons and neutrons. Oh, same brain, everybody's the same. Oh, it's all one, you know. The magnification was too deep. The magnification for, the, the magnification was too intense. You, you become ignorant about the brain by looking with too great a magnification. You learn a lot about electrons. You're gonna not learn anything about the brain if you're looking at elementary particles, atoms, and so forth. So the magnification was too intense, too deep. You have to put the zoom lens down. Say, okay, elementary particles, atoms, molecules, complex molecules, cells, neurons, dendrites, synapses, ganglia, brain part. Oh, now I'm understanding the brain. You had to do big, big wide angle. And it's on that level you actually understand the brain. But to think you understand it by going down to the... You know, then you miss it. In a similar fashion here, madat machet means without investigating, without analyzing, don't probe too deeply, don't probe too shallowly. That is, if you just look at the brain with a naked eyeball, you know, just the eyeball, and say, oh, it's it's not very pretty, <laughs> you know. Just you don't have a very pretty brain. You don't have a very pretty brain. You don't either. In fact, you all have about the same color brain, and I don't think they're very pretty at all. You know. Well, that's about as superficial as it gets. Magnification wasn't good enough. You don't learn much about the brain by seeing that big goopy thing, you know. Looks like intestines wrapped up in a sack. (laughs) Except they're usually not (laughs) containing the same material. (laughs) Uh, So, leaving that aside. Degree of magnification. And that is if we're attending only to surfaces, like looking at a brain and saying, oh, now I understand the brain, it's gray. You know, well... If that's as far as you got, that was pretty simplistic. And if all we're looking at is appearances, oh, this person's pretty, this person's tall, this person's skinny, fat, old, young. Well, this, this brain is gray and that brain is gray. We miss it. Then we've not gone deep enough to see anybody lovable. What are you looking at, body? You're looking at skin? Go too deep, you don't find. Glom onto something like a brain and say, that's a human being, you totally miss it. And so it's finding the right degree of magnification. And this is where Buddhaghosa chimes in. I'm bringing in Nagarjuna and Tsongkhapa and Buddhaghosa. These are the towering peaks of the Buddhist tradition in multiple traditions. And that is when when Buddhaghosa, and I think I'll end on this point, or this will be the second to last, and that is he said, what is the immediate catalyst for loving kindness, for it to arise? And what is it? I've said it. What is the immediate trigger, the catalyst, that arouses the immediate cause for loving-kindness to arise. Seeing the lovable quality. Seeing the lovable quality of another sentient being. doesn't have to be a human being. Lovable doesn't mean attractive. Flowers are attractive. But there's no reason to develop loving-kindness for flowers. They don't love you back. They don't feel anything. So it's not that. It's not attractiveness. It's something that is lovable, something that is worthy of love. Attending to someone and seeing, having a sense of this, the dearness of that person, an endearing endearing quality. Flowers are not endearing. They're pretty, they're lovely, they're gorgeous. But they're not endearing, are they? I don't think so. So sentient beings, a puppy, an animal, human being, what have you, old person, young person, can be endearing, giving rise to as we attend closely. We don't like ourselves because we're attending to that which is not ourselves and identifying with it. Attending to our own mental afflictions which are not ourselves and identifying with them and then lo and behold of course we don't like ourselves. Why should we like mental afflictions? Nothing to like about them. So the degree of magnification is not right. We look into our minds and we see a bunch of mental afflictions and say, well, I don't like myself, I just saw anger, jealousy, pettiness, and so forth and so on. Wrong magnification, wrong magnification. There's nothing lovable in them. So what are you looking there for? It's like looking at bronchitis or looking at polio, I don't love that person, polio. Wrong magnification. So how deeply do we go, how closely do we attend to see the lovableness in ourselves and in others. Just like we need to look beyond the surface level of skin, we need to look beyond the surface level of mental afflictions, but not go so deeply that we're looking into emptiness, because that's not an object of loving kindness, there's nothing to, you know, if I look at the, meditate on the emptiness of Carlos, it's, I'm going to love that, it's, it's not a sentient being, the absence of inherent existence of Carlos, well I'm not going to love that. There's nothing to love there, but to attend closely enough. At what level of magnification? At what level of magnification? So These are deep issues, aren't they? I think they are. At what level of magnification for ourselves? Look deeply enough, there's no one there, okay? Nothing to love. Look superficially enough, and I see body, I see body parts, I see tactile sensations. That's not me. I'm not going to love that. They're just sensations. They're just mental events. So look too deeply, I get nothing. Look too superficially, I get a whole bunch of stuff that isn't me. And bearing in mind, this is a relative mind attending to relative reality. There's someone here who is every bit as real as thoughts, skin, and so forth. Who's that that's lovable? Finding the right degree, where's the focus, the right degree of magnification? Consider this, I had a, a lovely conversation with someone today. And I mentioned that I didn't know this person just a couple of months ago. If I were walking along a city street and this person walked right by, it'd be another person. Okay, another person, good. I mean there's lots of people around, It's one more person. I wouldn't know this person at all, one more person. That's it. It's just a person I to walk by. Okay. Now I've gotten to know this person a little bit, you know, in our weekly meetings. It's perfectly obvious to me. I mean, it would be obvious to really anybody. I think sitting in my chair, in my room, the person sitting across from me is very, very lovable. Don't need to be genius, nothing special, but I've simply been attending closely. That's it, with nothing special, but just attending closely. And it's just obvious this person is very lovable. It's not skin, it's not mental afflictions, it's not emptiness. There's a person there sitting across, and it's just perfectly obvious. Oh, this person is so lovable. How could anybody, how could anybody know this person and not see this person is lovable? It's perfectly obvious. Right? How did it happen? Well, not just by walking across, you know, cro- just passing in the street but by attending to this person, listening to this person. This person, like I think pretty much all of you, has been very open, very not defensive. When you're speaking with me, you're not trying to defend, you don't think I'm going to attack. Just being very candid, sharing what's going on in your life. You know that I'm here to help. I have a very simple agenda. (coughs) So no covering, no defensiveness, no posturing. Nothing of that. Just coming here as friends. I try to help. But in doing that, you get to know the person, and you say, ah, oh, it's a lovable person. One more lovable person, and all I had to do was attend, and then it's obvious. Right? So if we come to know ourselves in a similar way, we are all that lovable person. If we can attend there and recognize, yes, I'm a lovable person with mental afflictions, and I have some bad habits, still a lovable person, sometimes I get angry. The, angry, the, ang- the anger isn't lovable, but I am. And I wish myself well. Get to know yourself. Get to so- know yourself well enough that you see someone there who is worthy of love. And then extend that out and extend it out. And at least in your mind's eye, recognize everyone. If the barriers come down, if they show their heart to you, show what they're struggling with, what they're striving for, everyone is worthy of love. You find every sentient being is lovable. But we have to attend, we have to attend closely. It's true, isn't it? Okay. Let's practice. Two ways, according to the Buddha, of cultivating love and kindness. What is one? Is to cultivate it meditatively. And the other is to act in a loving fashion. The two are complementary, as usual. So let's begin in a loving fashion. Attending to ourselves. As we settle the body in its natural state and the respiration in its natural rhythm, soothing and calming the mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing, to declare that the mind that is established in equilibrium comes to know reality as it is, the mind at rest, the mind free of excitation and laxity, of cognitive imbalances, of superimposing, of denying that which is real, and simply being present with what is true. Attending closely, let's begin by attending closely to ourselves, but finding the proper degree of magnification, Not not too superficial, not too deep. Attend closely to the person whom you are. having gotten to know yourself well. Can you find someone lovable there, worthy of love, And if you find it helpful, then return to the practice of visualizing the deepest, primordially pure dimension of your own awareness as an orb of light, be it small or large, and with every outbreath, as light emanates from this orb, arouse the yearning. May I be truly well and happy and find and cultivate the causes of genuine happiness. Imagine experiencing the well being that is your heart's desire, what would truly bring you happiness and a sense of fulfillment. Bring to mind as vividly as you can a person who is very dear to you, a person for whom you find it very easy to perceive that which is lovable. Simply attend closely to the person who, like yourself, is wishing for happiness and freedom from suffering, anxiety, and pain. And with every outbreath, wish them well. May you find the happiness you seek. same way, attend to another person who is dear to you, for whom you find it just spontaneously effortless to feel a sense of, of affection that arises from the heart. Attend closely and with every out-breath. Breathe out the aspirations of loving-kindness, the breath, the light of loving-kindness. to mind then someone with whom your relationship is far more casual. It may even be someone you know well, but to whom you have not given a whole lot of attention. Do so now. Attend closely. Like bringing a camera lens into focus not too shallow, not too deep. Focusing to the point where you get clear. And you're attending to someone who is so much like yourself and so equally worthy equally worthy of finding happiness. And wish this person well in the same way. As you engage in the practice, you may recall how much you wish to be loved yourself, for others to be aware of you, to acknowledge you, to care about you, and feel a genuine sense of affection for you through knowing you. not superficially and attend to others in the same way that you would have them attend to you. to mind someone with whom you've had difficulty, tension, conflict, where there's a barrier. The heart is not really open. And look beyond the surface, look deeper. To the depth where you can see someone like yourself who is truly worthy of love and wish this person well Expand, expand the field of your awareness to include all those around you. And breathe out the light of loving-kindness. It's a practical question with four questions or at least four notes. Um, could I elaborate on unfastened mindfulness? Somebody's read my doctoral dissertation uh, from the Theravada tradition, uh, which I compare to, which you compare in, uh, I compare it in the Intention Revolution with practices of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. I can't really because it's not very clearly articulated. The references to it, I saw this in one book by Colette Cox, say, a, a scholar scholar. Uh, very, you know, very academic scholar of of Abhidhamma, Theravada Buddhism. She refers to it, but I really couldn't couldn't find out much more about it. So I think it's a dry well. I don't, I don't, I can't really pursue it further. Um, so that's that. The answer is no. I wish I could, but I have not found anything uh, elaborated. I checked when I when I was doing my dissertation research, um, but couldn't come up with much. Here's a personal one. I'll I'll read that a little bit later. Yeah, it's a long one. So, and it doesn't say. I'll just read it. Oh, I feel like a pilot who has been training in simulators, then having a healthy, helping a healthy plane. With with, uh, with with fuel of motivation. With a way to with a map, to flight from, crap mind. Jungle. I've heard of that. That's in central Mexico, a little bit south of uh, Mine jungle, wherever. To Chamata International Airport. Yes, there's a lot of traffic there. It's really wonderful to see all the planes coming. <laughs> also, Also with some friends in their cockpits checking the engines every day. We just have one problem. There's no airport to take off. What to do? What's wrong with your meditation room? You want a better meditation room? or if you're referring to um, having a contemplative observatory, I feel if, you know, what a bottom line is. I mean, people are waiting, waiting, waiting. Like When is somebody going to give us a contemplative observatory? (laughs) Where is somebody really rich going to give us a contemplative observatory? Lots of luck. If you want a contemplative observatory, make one. Nothing to hold you back, but it makes some sacrifice. Everybody sacrifices for for what they value. They don't value, they don't make sacrifices. It's really pretty simple. So what to do? I can't be relaxed sitting in my cockpit waiting for someone to build it. I have the wish to get off the plane and start building as soon as possible. How to be patient and relaxed. Oh, I'm, I'm not quite sure the level of magnification to look at here. That is, in terms of the circumstances we have right here for one more month, um, I don't really know what Klaus, and I'm sure there's no complaining here. There's no question about that, but I don't really know what Klaus, what more Klaus could have done to create a conducive environment for us. I mean, it's it's just fantastic, and I think we all appreciate that, and we're aware of that. So, and we all have our own private rooms, very very much by design. That's why we only have 36 people in the retreat. Um, so, so I'm not quite. I mean, the, the metaphors are really cool. Um, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I can see who it's from. If that person would like to clarify for me a little bit, I'd be happy to try to give a clear answer. But I'm sure it's not complaining about here, because there's nothing to complain about, and there's no sense of complaining, but I don't quite understand. So, Yonam. It's Yonam's question, so maybe you can elaborate a little bit. And as the microphone is coming, somebody asked, if one of my students accomplishes Shamata, would I tell everybody? I'll think, I'll think about it. I'll think about it.
1: Well, the question is how to be patient
0: and relaxed. Patient and relaxed, yeah, got that part.
1: Um, When we have been training for some time, not now. I mean, from, let's say, uh, some months or years. Some of you have, yeah, it's true. And um, how, to, how to be relaxed and how, how to find the balance between uh, keep practicing mm-hmm. or in retreat yeah, or get out of it and just build a... And a go into the great something. casino
0: of Samsara and hope for the best.
1: That's right, because that's the problem. When you get out of the plane... Uh, samsara. Yeah. It's a casino.
0: Some people are lucky. You. I, I've met some very happy people who don't practice Dharma at all. They're really lucky. But the house always wins. That's what they say in Las Vegas, the house always wins. Play long enough and the house will win and you're going to end with an empty pocket and the house goes away with all your money. And that's samsara. The house always wins. So there's the alternative. But I think, but I'm going to paraphrase it and tell me, tell me whether I have, I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm, I'm going to imagine this is what you're asking. And that is, on the one hand, clearly we need patience. Clearly we need a sense of ease, relaxation about this. On the other hand, we're practicing in order to bring about transformation, not just to hang out. And so it would be nice to achieve shamatha. It would be nice to make, bring as much meaning for this, to this life as possible, to really progress along the path to enlightenment. And so how to, on the one hand, really incorporate the insights from the meditations on the precious human rebirth, and the importance of you know, taking full advantage of the opportunity of this lifetime, let alone this month. On the one hand, on the other hand, chill, relax, be at ease. Is that your question? Or is it another question?
1: Yes, but at the same time, it has to do with, uh, for example, uh, I've been reading uh, some, oh, a book a commentary of the Badra Essence,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in which, uh, for example, you state that for many years you were from one rotten environment to another. I, I said that. Yeah. Yes, true. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. From hepatitis to bedbugs to fleas to
0: rats to snakes, yeah, I've, I've been yeah. there.
1: So I think that happens to some of us. So, uh, so with. In my case, I think, anyway, the option was, let's, let's get off of this, because mm-hmm. it's just wasting my fuel, you know? It's, it's, I'm we, losing the motivation, we, so, uh-huh. so I better build it.
0: Because the environment, is there, clearly, especially for shamatha, that is for lojong, for other practices, for the four measurables. For the four measurables, I mean, in principle, they're ready to be practiced anywhere lojong is all designed to transform, the lojong mind-training practices, seven-point mind-training and so forth, designed really to develop our skill set, develop our strength, our wisdom and so forth, so no matter what comes up, we transform it. But there are some practices, as we're all vividly aware, especially shamatha. It's kind of odd that I chose, in a way it's odd, that I chose among all of the so many types of meditation within the Buddhist tradition I'm emphasizing, so highlighting, one that really requires a conducive environment, more so than Vipassana, more so than Bodhicitta, more so than so many others. But everybody knows why, because if you have not developed your attention skills, what other practices are going to go well? And to develop attention skills for a while, you really do want a conducive environment. And if you're really in an unconducive environment, and then continue to practice practice shamatha, you remember what Atisha said, if you don't have the internal and external requisite, you can practice for a thousand years. If you could live that long, you could actually meditate for a thousand years and still not achieve Shamatha. So it's it's a very unmystical, unmushy, un kind of approach. It's just cut, you know, it's very much more like a chemistry or physics textbook approach. Get the right environment, bring to it the right inner qualities. And you I think for anybody who's read Ascension Revolution or any of the classic presentations it's exactly what they are, they're not difficult to understand, bring those outer, those inner together with a strong motivation and so forth, and then there's just no reason not to achieve shamatha. But
1: the um,
0: outer circumstances really are imperative.
1: Yeah, so but what is your question? I guess my question would be, uh, where do you think I can go and achieve shamatha?
0: Yeah, well, you're from a Sangha that has 1,500 members, active members right now, I think 5,000 in the background, something like that, who come and go. Um, Many of them don't have much money, and some of them are really doing pretty well. And so, I've been saying this in New Mexico for 10 years now, every single time, almost, I mean, certainly for many, many years now. Every year, twice a year. It's getting close to 20 times. Coming and every time saying the same message. If Dharma is really going to take... if That is, if we're content that Buddhism simply be a religion. And I I am religiously Buddhist. I take refuge, bodhicitta, pray, blah, blah, blah. I'm Buddhist. I'm religious. So I'm not disparaging that at all. There's a religious dimension of Buddhism. And I revere it. Not everybody does, and I don't mind that. Some people want to eject the religious element out of Buddhism altogether, clean it up as if it's garbage. I think they're profoundly mistaken. I'm not that. But religion is really about belief. It's reliance upon authority, upon tradition, upon sacred text, history. you know. And we tell all the great stories from the past just like the Christians do. The teachings of the life of Jesus, the great saints of the past and so forth. You know, It's authority-based, it's tradition-based, it's faith-based. Right? And if one's content with that, then you don't need yogis. You don't need yogis. All you need to do is continue telling the stories. And they'll get more and more distant time. We'll be telling stories of, you know, lamas who came from Tibet, but then there'll be a generation and a generation and a generation. And, you know, So if one's content with that, then the status quo is fine. Because what we're doing is perfectly enough to maintain the religion of Buddhism. In the great, the shettas, the shettas, the the study centers, whether in the West, we have some very good ones. We have some very good teachers. who are teaching Buddhist doctrine and teaching it well. There are a lot of good teachers. In the monasteries in, a- in Asia, Seda, Ganden, Depung, the Sakya monastery and in, in Dedodun, great Nyingma monastery, and right near there, uh, Nimas monastery. Namjur Ling down in the south of India, fantastic, excellent monastery, let alone in Tibet. There are many monasteries. And, many, and then you can study it academically. You can go to a, there's some fine Buddhist studies program in, in, in modern Western universities. So if you want to study Buddhism theoretically, philosophically, doctrinally, there are plenty of places to do that. It's not going to die out. It's not going to die out. Not within our generation. I think not within 50 years. It won't die out. There's a lot of momentum there. There's support for it, academically, certainly. They'll, they'll study historically no matter what. You know, In the old days, there used to be a tradition called Buddhism, you know, a museum piece. So, religiously, philosophically, we don't need to do much more than it's being done. It's being done pretty well. In terms of people doing three retreats, three-month retreats, one-week retreats, it's not going to die out. People are doing it. It'll be maintained. The question is, are we content with that? Everything I just said is good. There was no sarcasm. There was no no irony. All of this is good. Three retreats are good. People really practice Dharma, pure motivation. It's virtue. Virtue. Virtue is always good. The question is, are we content with the status quo? It's really that simple. Are we content with, okay, all, all is good. Carry on. And let's just continue. So if we are, then that's that. Oh, for years now, I've been suggesting worldwide. And since I come to Mexico, over the last 10 years, more often than any other place. Other places, I I come here or there. But Mexico has been regular. It's the only place. And I'm doing that with Australia for the last couple of years also, twice a year. But those are the only two places that I come regularly. Uh, Because I'm coming with some aspiration, some vision, that could be real potential. Okay. That was why. Not just because I have a prejudice for Mexicans or for Australians. It's not the reason. But feeling real sincerity, real dedication. I've been saying the same thing year after year after year. There's a whole dimension here we're missing. I don't know why, but we're missing it. Who's teaching us to reach the path? To really realize shamatha. Not just practice it for a week, a month, but actually achieve it. Not just to practice vipassana, but to realize it. If we're going the Dzogchen route, not just to do a bit of nature of mind or a bit of open presence or what have you, but actually to realize Dzogchen, texture, to become a Vidyadatta. There are places in Tibet. The Really, the the primary place Tibetan Buddhism is being practiced and practiced really well is still Tibet. It's an incredible irony because they have suffered so much and it is so oppressed there. I've been there four times. It's so oppressed and it's still the place where you find the greatest yogis, more of them. Of course, it's where most Tibetans are. It's only about 2% of the Tibetans are outside, so what do we expect? 98% are still in Tibet, right? So this is not a criticism of anything, of course. If 98% are there, why shouldn't that be We're still the hub of really practiced, dynamic, vital, deep Buddhist practice? But how is that possible after the Cultural Revolution, which was just hell on earth? And not just for the Tibetans, so many minorities. I mean, out with, the, out with everything old. I mean, it was just, it was like the witch-hunting craze in Europe for 250 years, but this went on shorter. It was really, the prime time was 1966 to 1976. Massive psychosis. Top down from Mao Zedong himself right down to the, you know, to the Red Guard and so forth. Wipe out everything old. Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, monasteries, ancient music, everything. What's more psychotic than that? Right. And with all of that, the decimation of almost every single monastery. Can you imagine somebody coming to the West and demolishing all of our universities, every single one, right down to the community college level, just wiping them all out, killing off as many professors as possible, burning all the books that they can get their hands on? Can you imagine that? That's what happened. 6,000 monasteries, half dozen or so survived. And with all of that, I mean, it's staggering. I mean, it's just if one really dwells on that one, we're just going to start crying for a long, long time. You know With all of that, you go to Tibet nowadays, and everything you're seeing that's there, of dynamic, really living Buddhism, it's all since 1980. Before 1980, you couldn't say Om mani Peme hum, not in public. You'd be one of the old, you'd be one of the, oh, bad people all built up since 1980. So I went there in 1992 for the first time and I traveled fairly widely. One place, it just blew me away. I, I could hardly believe my eyes, and in a, in a happy way, because there's a lot to be sad about there. But I'm focusing on something you just oh, couldn't imagine. How could this be? It was coming to the region of Amdongaba in northern Sichuan, about one long day's drive from Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan. Came to this region, in, in Chinese they call it Aba, A-B-A. Visited there. Got in illegally. We weren't supposed to be there. We didn't have permits. Well, we just slipped in and got in anyway. They kicked us out the next day, but I had some time. And to see what it was like there, because it was a restricted area. But I was just there for Dharma, so I figured, hey, it may be illegal, but it's not immoral. You know? And so, but the one day I had there blew my mind. And that is, and, this is, and I've been there since, since then, about six years ago, I was there again. Oh. But visiting there in 1992 made such an impression. I wanted to move there, even with the Chinese presence, the Chinese Communist presence. Because in this, in this valley, large valley, broad valley, the first monastery we came to was Amchot Senigun. Some of you might know Amchot Rinpoche. That's his monastery. 500 monks, and I dropped in. I was with my wife, it was our first trip, and I dropped into this monastery. 500 monks, they're debating. This is 12 years after they had nothing. Monastery with 500 monks. And I walked in this weird-looking gringo and started debating with them, you know. And they, they could hardly, whoa, white guy. Whoa. They were, whoa, that's really, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. We had a nice encounter. And then that was on the outskirts. And then went into the town of Abba. And then went to Gomang, Gomang Monastery. It's a, it's a branch of Gomang of Depung, 500 monks. Everything's spick and span, beautiful buildings. I mean, nothing elegant, but brand new monastery. Everything of clay, like, like uh, New Mexico style, or old, old adobe, is really beautiful. It's, it's, and met with the abbot, spent three hours in conversation with the abbot. And the dynamo, the, the energy there, of really reestablishing dharma. And then just down the road was Kirti some of you know of Kirti Tsenjabrambache. That's his home monastery. 2,000 monks. Twelve years earlier they had nothing. Amazing. How could they have 2,000 monks? And then just up the road there's another monastery. This is the Jonang Monastery. 800 monks. The monastery completely new-built. All this new-built. 800 monks. Little monks, medium monks, older monks. Where do they come from? They came out from the fields after 20 years of suppression. They came on, put on their robes again. And immediately started practicing Dharma and teaching. And all of those 800 monks in the monastery either had or will do a three year retreat in Kala Chakra. I thought, whoa, just up the road is another monastery, Sakya Monastery, 500 monks. All that happened. I said, how is it? This is 12 years after they had nothing. How is this possible? Oh, then I learned. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't Patna coming down and just going poof, 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 poof and making monasteries out of nothing. It wasn't some really rich Chinese guy coming in and saying, oh, you want money? I just got so much I don't know what to do with it. Make some monasteries. No, nope, it wasn't that either. It wasn't some super rich Tibetan dude because there weren't any. Nobody, there weren't any rich Tibetan dudes. Not in this area. Not in 1980, not in 1990. Nobody was rich. So where all the monasteries come from? It was the villagers giving about half their income. Over twelve years. The villagers raising barley, potatoes, crops, ordinary lives, giving up to half giving up to half their income. And for a very simple reason. This is the meaning of life. This is the meaning of their life. To reestablish Dharma. After twenty years of starvation. I mean they could practice dharma quietly inside their minds, but not from their mouths and not with their bodies. Right? And this this was their culture. This is what was meaningful. This was the thing that was most meaningful. Is their children and their children's children would have places to study dharma, to practice dharma. And they made the sacrifices corresponding to what they valued. So I didn't see one nice car. There was not one nice car in the whole valley. But there were some really nice monasteries. And I visited there six years ago, and it was much more. Really growing. thought, oh, this is where people really have faith in Dharma. They value Dharma. And, of course, who's getting the benefit from that? They invested in their own valley. They didn't look for outside. They weren't waiting for some rich person outside. Why don't you give us some money? Give us some money. No. Why should the other person give them money? They valued it. And then they're getting benefit. So now they're living in kind of like a Dharma valley. Monks everywhere. Nuns, meditators, yogis. Pretty incredible. But it's because they valued it and they made the sacrifices. So if they're doing contemplative observatories, there are two approaches. One is to continue waiting. Where is that rich guy? Won't Klaus give us another one? Klaus is really nice. Maybe Klaus could, should give us another one. You know? He made the mind center. Why didn't he give us another one? Or maybe we'll find some other rich person. He should give us something. Why? Because they value Dharma, but we don't. Why should they? Why should they? Really? And so if we make no sacrifices, then we get what we deserve. If we make no sacrifice, we get nothing. And if we're content to have Buddhism simply be a religion and a philosophy, that's what we'll get. And that's what we'll pass on to our children. Religion and philosophy. And they each has its value. But if we compare that to the great yogis of Tibet, of India, going back to the time of the Buddha, who spoke from knowledge, from direct experience, they don't just talk about shamatha. They practice it, they put in the time. And they create. If they can't create it themselves, their families create it for them. If not their families, the community. But they are taking care of themselves, and they're thinking about not just their needs right now, they're thinking about one generation, two generations. They built these monasteries to last. These are not monasteries that are going to fall apart. They built them to last. Their their walls are like a foot thick, solid. They're looking ahead because they know they know what it was like to be have no dharma, that it's all crushed. So they made whatever sacrifices are necessary. And then they get the benefit. Other people like me get benefit because I drop in and I get inspired to see. But they get the benefit every day. So, there's a lot of very healthy skepticism in the modern world of religion. A lot of it's very healthy. It can be very harsh. It's still healthy, because an awful lot of nonsense under the banner of religion, and a lot of really awful behavior under the banner of religion. But then often, it seems, in the minds of some people, can only think in two ways. It's either religion or it's atheism. And then they promote atheism as something like God's gift to mankind. And they, sli- and they kind of, when it comes to Stalinism and the 20 million people that he killed under the banner of atheism, they blink. And they think of tens of millions of people who died in a, a Mao Zedong and they blink. And how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands under Pol Pot and they blink. Oh, boys will be boys. As if atheism is somehow better, that it's got a better track record than any of the religions of the world. I don't know, I, I don't understand that kind of historical stupor. Just flat-out stupor. Like, don't you know what happened in the 20th century? You know? So, religion and then materialistic atheistic science, are those the only two options? And to a lot of people, they like to say yes. Religious fundamentalists say, yep, yeah, that's exactly right. It's our way or the highway. You're either with us or you're one of those atheists going to hell. And a lot of atheists materialists say, yeah, absolutely, those religion people are full of crap. It's just superstition, 100% superstition. It's mumbo jumbo, it's clap trap, whether it's Buddhist clap trap, Christian whatever, it's just junk. And the only way is our way. And people love to say that. It makes them secure. And Buddhism comes along with another song and said, "No thank you to atheism, no thank you to materialism. It's flat. No thank you to religious fundamentalism, dogmatism, closed-mindedness. It's flat." What has depth is experience, the heart, the heartbeat of good science, and it's the heartbeat of good religion also, it's the heartbeat of dharma, of buddha dharma. But as you say, Yonam, you're exactly right, if we don't create the conducive environment for it, we have conducive environment for the religious aspects of Buddhism, we have conducive environments multiple for the philosophical, the doctrinal, we do, it won't disappear. But unless we create conducive environments where people can practice single-pointedly and have support, not expect them all to be rich, not tell them, get a job. That's a bit harsh. Is that what the, is that what the, the people in the Tibetans in, uh, in Amdala Naba said? You know, get a job? All the people who want to become monks to devote their whole life to Dharma? Get a job? I've heard it. I've heard that from Westerners. Telling other Westerners, oh, if you want to go into retreat, get a job first. Okay. You don't have any faith? Cool. Whatever. I don't ask, any, ask anybody to have faith. But people give, what they give to what they value. So, if Buddhism really does embody a science of the mind, not just a religion, not just a philosophy, for all their value, and I think they do have value, because I embrace both, the religious, the philosophical, I embrace them. But if it's also a science, a science of the mind, And the the principal initial technology is shamatha. It's true in all schools of Buddhism. Zen means jhana. Theravada couldn't be clearer. The whole Indo-Tibetan tradition can't be clearer. That shamatha should be practiced and accomplished. With that basis, with a very supple, pliable, serviceable mind, then you develop bodhicitta. If we're talking Mahayana, you develop Vipassana. If you want to go to Vajrayana, with that basis, you develop stage of generation completion. You want to go Dzogchen, Tekshod and Turkel. But first of all, you get a serviceable mind. So how many environments are there for developing a serviceable mind? How many teachers are there that are emphasizing this is what it's really about, develop a serviceable mind, open heart, develop an extremely balanced mind so that you can do all these other practices effectively and derive the full benefit from them? I don't know. I don't know why it's so rare. I, I continue to be kind of perplexed. But I'm not perplexed. I'm perplexed by many things. I guess I'm just a perplexed guy. <laughs> because I don't, see, I don't see why people keep on expecting somebody else to deliver goods for them when they're not way only make these sacrifices themselves. That shows they don't believe in it. Why should somebody else believe in what they de- demonstrably don't really believe in themselves? Because they won't sacrifice anything significant for it. So why should some rich person say, oh, yes, I'll sacrifice, here's a million dollars, because you don't want to come up with a million dollars. Not a thousand of you, not 5,000 of you, not 15,000 of you. You don't want to do it. But, but you, don't, you don't value it enough. Well, gosh, then I will value it more than you do. Here, I have a million dollars. And somehow that's thought to be reasonable. I don't understand that. So I think if we want to create, if we want to have conducive environments for really setting out and reaching the path, then we have to do it ourselves. We don't wait for somebody else to do it. And we either do it, and if we don't want to do it, then we shouldn't expect teachers to encourage us to do that, which we're clearly not interested in doing. We shouldn't expect teachers to keep on teaching practices, but it can be done only in a conducive environment, when we're not willing to create conducive environments but to put put, put the teachings into practice. Why should we expect the teachers to get old and die, encouraging us to do something we're not willing to do? Why should we expect that? That's not reasonable. So either we take the Dharma seriously, and again, if we don't have faith in Dharma, that's fine, no problem. Most people don't have faith in Dharma. It doesn't bother me at all. It's no problem. So we we, we give to what we really care about. If we want conducive environments, we have to do it ourselves. It calls organization, it calls strategy, it means getting the job done. And I've seen it: twelve years from nothing to that valley, and I saw what people can do when they work collectively. They get it together, and they get a strategy, and they get it done. That's how dharma is preserved. It's pretty impressive. So that's how. Okay. So Klaus has given us a fantastic launching pad, and. We got it for nothing, we got it for nothing. I didn't give anything to this. I didn't give f- five cents, I didn't give him a dollar to this. He just invited me to come and teach, you know, so, thank you, Klaus, for getting us started. But if we're going to continue, and we shouldn't keep on asking other people to provide what we're not willing to provide ourselves, that's not reasonable, okay? You can still enjoy your dinner. Good night.